Okay, so we are continuing with this Bible overview, um, and we're beginning to get, I guess, to the, the less well-known areas. Um, we're through Genesis, Exodus, the sort of famous stories, and the story now gets both less well-known and also a bit messier. Um, we're into that. We're going to look this morning at the parts of the Bible that get towards the kind of the wars of the Old Testament, um, some of the kind of conquest parts of the Bible that that, that generally are less often preached and generally sort of make some of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. So I'm going to try slightly ambitiously to get through about three books this morning. Um, obviously in no great detail. But let's start with numbers. Um, we left Israel at Sinai. Um, they've been rescued out of Egypt. They've been brought to Mount Sinai. Uh, they spend about a year at Mount Sinai. That's where they get the Ten Commandments. They get all the teaching about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is set up there. Last week we saw how um, the Levitical system, all the offerings and sacrifices, um, was instituted. Again, all at Sinai. Just over a year they are. So from Exodus 19, when they arrive at Sinai, through to Numbers chapter 10, they don't go anywhere. Okay, so Exodus part 2, Leviticus, and the first half of Numbers, there's no movement. It's all sat still teaching. And the book of Numbers, as its name might suggest, begins with a counting um, they number the Israelites. And in fact, it's worth turning up numbers. We'll flick through a few passages. Uh, you can see right there, I'm not going to read it, but you can see right there in chapter 1, there's a numbering of all the clans. Why? Well, it's all about the fulfilment of the promises. Remember, God promised Abraham his children would be as, as, as many as the stars in heaven or grains of sand on the beach. And so here they are, suddenly... Abraham's little family uh, has grown, and chapter 1 ends with a, uh, the, the total. The, the number of men able to go to war was 603,350. Okay, that's just the men able to fight. So imagine the actual number was probably 2 million, something like that. And the early book chapters of Numbers, they all concern this arrangement of um, how the camp is to be set up. The tabernacle in the middle, God at the centre, and the tribes are arranged in their camps, and it's all laid out. Um, pretty specifically. Uh, and so this theme of God dwelling with his people, the Emmanuel principle, it's there in the book of Numbers. God is right at the heart. If we were to map it out, you'd see the tabernacles at the centre and almost, I don't think this is deliberate, but almost in the shape of a cross, the rest of the, the, the tribes kind of camp around. God is there at the centre of his people. Uh, and finally, in Numbers chapter 10, they finally get going. Uh, so Numbers 10 uh, and verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So basically, God leads his people. It's never Moses saying, look, we know the quickest way to, to Israel from Egypt. It's always follow the cloud. So the cloud of God's presence moves, stops. So they build the tabernacle there again, camp around it until the the cloud moves on. Uh, but straight, straight away, it begins to go wrong. Numbers is a book of grumbling. You see chapter 11. So they've only been going one chapter, at least in the ESV. My title says that the people complain. Verse 1, the people complained, grumbled in the hearing of the Lord. And this happens endlessly uh, in Numbers. In fact, in the next chapter, it's even Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron who, who oppose Moses. It's not just the people, it's... It's everybody, you know, even the highest leaders. 
And the climax of this, this grumbling, really, is in chapter 13. So again, three chapters into wandering. Okay, they've hardly gone very far. And they get to the edge of the promised land, and they, they send out the spies. Remember this story? They send the spies into the promised land. Um, there's a few chairs at the front as well, guys, if you want to sneak in. Um, two on this one, I think. Um, they send the spies into the promised land. And in go the, the 12 spies, spies, one from each tribe. Ten come back and say, there's no chance. We're never going to get in there. The people there are huge. They're giants. We're never going to conquer the land. And only two, Caleb and Joshua, say, no, of course we can take the land. God has promised it to us. Um, but the, the, the congregation, sadly, the people of Israel basically side with the spies. They grumble. Um, we're never going to get in. We've been brought out here to die. Uh, and so, pretty tragically, if you just flick over to chapter 14. And um, as a result of the, the sort of faithlessness of the spies and the way the people tremble and, and <clears throat> side against Caleb and Joshua, who, who say they can do it. God says he's going to wipe, he's going to wipe out Israel and he'll, he'll build again with just Moses. Moses prays, he intercedes, he's a Christ-like figure, he says, no, be faithful to your promises. And chapter 14, verse 20, this is where we end up. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times. See that? Ten times they've done it. And have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. None of them who despise me shall see it. In other words, this generation, okay, the, the adults, the grown-ups, he goes on to explain anyone over 20, is going to die in the desert. So, so they're already out of the promised land. They're, they're, they're almost there to go in. In fact, some of the spies have already gone in. But God says, no, because you've grumbled 10 times now, complained against me 10 times, not believed 10 times, I'm going to wipe out that whole generation that saw the crossing of the Red Sea, saw the plagues. Remember, these are the people who saw incredible miracles and yet still wouldn't believe God would do the last one and get them into the land. So they're all going to get wiped out except, in verse 30, Caleb and Joshua, the two faithful spies. But everybody else is going to die in the desert. So this is the 40 years of wandering. For 40 years, they're going to um, wander in the desert, basically aimlessly. On the back of your sheet, I put a little map um, not drawn by me. I don't know who drew it. I just nicked it off the internet. Um, total chaos, isn't it? It's walking around in circles for 40 years, basically. And the, the, uh, the desert becomes a graveyard for that whole generation. And so the rest of Numbers is all about these wanderings. And they keep grumbling, unsurprisingly. But slowly, um, that, that generation dies out. The real tragedy, I think, right towards the end of the book in Numbers 20, is that Moses too is forbidden to enter the promised land. Um, God has provided water from the rocks um, at one point, and then he, um, he calls Moses, uh, and um, Moses strikes the rock twice. Okay, he does what he hasn't, he does more than God asked him to do. Water comes out, and God says, look, because you didn't believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, you won't bring this assembly into the land I've given you. So even Moses isn't going to get into uh, the promised land. So Numbers, in some ways, is a pretty depressing book. God is gracious. He keeps forgiving, but one generation is going to be wiped out. Um, 
And it's all about the wanderings in the desert. They've left Egypt, but they've not yet arrived at the promised land. Just round tables, just for a couple of minutes, um, so you don't have to listen to me solidly for half an hour. Um, how might you, you, you sort of apply the book of Numbers to us today? So how would we move from Israelites in the desert to the church today? What are the links between the Israelites in the desert and us today in terms of their situation? And if you manage, manage that, you can think about the grumbling too. Um, so Numbers 11.5 would be a good verse to focus on, on for the grumbling. But, but start with that first one. What, what are the links? How do you move from Israelites in the desert to us, the church today? Okay, let's come back together there. We've got Deuteronomy and Joshua to, to get through as well. Um, Israelites in the desert, church today. What are some of the kind of big picture links that you came up with? I have to shout in this room, but... Hey, Mandy. Do you mean the church as the church as organization? Okay. uh, Or you mean the church of true believers because these people, either Israelites, were all given uh, salvation and they didn't make it. Yeah. So they lost the salvation. Okay. But we know that if we're truly saved in Christ, salvation is secured in Christ, not in us. Yeah. So we cannot do salvation. Yeah. This, I don't understand the question. That's, no, no, good, that's good. Okay, you've gone to a difficult part of the thing. Um, <laughs> that's a really good question. So um, let me say a couple of things on that. Um, is the Exodus is a picture, as Mandy rightly says, of of salvation. It's what the Old Testament probably biggest picture of salvation. Um, and so, um, there, there, are, there are right parallels between. Uh, well, I'm going to promise I can give away the right answers to the question by answering this, but there, there are right parallels between the Exodus and the Gospel, put it like that. Um, I think with these Israelites, um, it is true that not all of them make it to the promised, or most of them don't make it to the promised land. Whether they are eternally saved or not is a different question. So it's possible that you can, so Moses, take Moses. Moses doesn't make it to the promised land. Moses very obviously is in heaven. Okay, he's not not saved in the eternal sense, although he he does come under a sort of a, a temporary punishment of you're not going to be allowed into the land. So that's true of Moses, and that'll be true, I would imagine, of plenty of the Israelites. So God does say in chapter what was it? He said I've um, forgiven their sin, doesn't he? Oh, I've forgiven them. Um, I can't find the verse quick enough. When Moses intercedes, um, yeah. Verse 20 of chapter 14, I have pardoned according to your word. So it is possible that God at times gives us discipline type punishments, in inverted commas, that don't mean we're not saved eternally, but they are temporary discipline. So Moses would be the obvious example of that. Um, so that, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, at the end of the day, the Exodus isn't the actual salvation. And so the parallels are not exact. So you're totally right. A Christian who is born again, given the spirit, is never going to fail to make it to heaven. That is certainly true. Um, yeah, that is true. Um, so, yeah. Let's, let, can, I, can we just see if anyone else has got answers to the question? Because that will slightly kind of shape what, what happens. Anyone else want to give some parallels between the two? What is the parallel between the church and Israel? Because these passages are applied directly to the church. In the New Testament, at various points. We forget and we grumble. Um, so, 
the Israelites witnessed kind of supernatural massive salvation through the parting of the Red Sea. Uh-huh. And then they're kind of grumbling and preoccupied with the everyday provision of like, where's my food? Where's my drink? Where's my... And we're saying, actually, we have this amazing, incredible, you know, salvation through Christ. And it's the little everyday things like the traffic or uh-huh. housework or the kind of, like, well, what about this? Or what about this? And how am I going to do this? And we kind of forget... Yeah, use that perspective of actually who God is and what He's done. Yep. He's shown himself to be. Definitely. Thanks, Jen. And if you read the the, um, the verse in, in chapter eleven, it was all kind of oh, wasn't life better back in Egypt? We had cucumbers and stuff. Um, first of all, totally forgetting that life was awful in, in Egypt. Um, but also, that's a bit like you know, wasn't life better before I was a Christian? Uh, wasn't it? Was life better when God left me alone? I didn't have all this battling sin or hardship or persecution. It's a total forgetting of what life was like before <coughs> and an ingratitude for um, the, the blessings that we have in Christ. I mean, the, the, the journey is, is like the Christian life, isn't it? We are on pilgrimage towards heaven. Um, so the church is out of Egypt, but not yet fully home to Canaan. Um, and that's the position we're in. Okay? We've been saved, we've been forgiven, but we're not yet home. There's much still to come, many blessings still to come in the future. So we are on, on the pilgrimage. Now, as Mandy picks up, you can't push the parallels too exactly and say, if you grumble 10 times in your life, God will not let you into heaven. As if suddenly salvation has come by works again or something like that. No, God has promised when he gives you your spirit, he will get you home. Um, and the, the, the gospel is therefore greater than the exodus. The exodus is the picture, the gospel is the reality. Um, but... There are still ways of sinning on the journey, um, still foolish moves we can make on the journey. Um, and this kind of grumbling pattern is one of them. And God isn't, in the New Testament, you think of the, the letters in Revelation, think of the Corinthians messing around in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 with the Lord's Supper. God is able to, to discipline those he loves, to use the language of Hebrews. In, in Corinthians, that involves some of them getting ill, some of them even dying. doesn't mean they don't end up in heaven, but there can be temporary disciplines uh, along the way, certainly. Um, that has opened up way bigger can of worms than I intended to, so we're <laughs> happy to talk about it on a, on a sort of individual level. But let's just press on. Um, by the end of Numbers, um, we arrive at the edge of the Promised Land, and the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book, the last book of the Torah, the Pentateuch, it, it, is, um, it is a series of speeches by Moses on the edge of the Promised Land. In fact, Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying. He's led this generation from Egypt all the way to the edge of the promised land. He gets taken up by a mountain so he can see it. But then because of his sin, he dies outside the land. Uh, And so Deuteronomy is is basically Moses' big last speech, preparing them for life in the land. I've just put one passage. I mean, there's lots in there we won't go into. One passage on your sheets, because it will be significant for later in the book. Um, Moses says, look, if you are faithful to God, okay, you trust his word and, and live out a life of obedience... There'll be all these kind of blessings for your crops will grow. You'll be safe from your enemies. It'll all be great. Um, a land flow with milk and honey. But if you don't, there'll be curses. Okay, so if you break the covenant, you don't believe God, turn away from him to idols. This is what's going to happen. Uh, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you should be left few in number. Because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord your God. Okay, so remember you were meant to be as... Abraham's children like the stars in heaven, but if you turn away from him, you'll be few in number. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. 
Okay, God was meant to be for you, he'll turn against you. And you shall be plucked off the land you're entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Remember those promises that God made to Abraham. You'll be a great people, I'll give you a great land, and I will be with you. Moses says, if you turn away from him, then actually the people will decline. You'll be thrown off the land into exile, scattered, and I'll no longer be your God. You'll turn to other gods. And so that, that kind of, that, that, that threat is sort of left lingering, as we'll see later in the Old Testament, sadly, uh, comes to pass. Um, but I want to, we've got time, I want to finish this morning with the book of Joshua, which I've certainly never preached, and it's, it's not the most um, commonly addressed book in the Old Testament, so I thought it'd be good just to look at it briefly. Um, the book of Joshua is really the book of Jesus. Um, Yeshua, Jesus' name um, is, is Joshua. Um, it's the same, same word. Uh, and Joshua is the man chosen to take over as, as um, the leader after Moses. He's going to be the new Moses. And so there's lots of similarities. He leads them across the Jordan, just like Moses led them across the Red Sea. Um, the, the Jordan River, which is the border to the promised land, parts miraculously, just like it did with Moses. And he sends in spies, but this time the spies are, are faithful. They're the ones who creep into Jericho. And you might remember the story of Rahab, the um, uh, prostitute in, in Jericho, hides them and they come back faithful. Uh, and so if you look at your little map, they've finally got there. So Israel is kind of above the wilderness of Sinai. And they, they come in, rather than just coming up from Egypt, which is the bottom left, in a straight line, they go right round and they come in from the west, sorry, come in from the east and head west. What, why that ridiculous route? It's not, it's not the quick route. Why that way? Well, it's also with the, the geography of the Old Testament we've seen so far. When you're expelled from Eden, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, they're kicked out to the east. Um, and so from then onwards, anytime someone goes east, they're going away from God. Anytime they go west, they're going towards God. So the tabernacle we saw is set up with the entrance on the, the east. So you come in from the east, head west. You're going back towards paradise. And so the Israelites are sort of sent on this loop to come in from the west, in from the east, sorry, over the Jordan, heading west. Um, because it's as if God is going to be there in the land. This is going to be there, the new Eden. I think, how are we doing for time? Um, yeah, let's have a look at it. J- Joshua 5. Um, this strange encounter between Joshua and, well, you can work out who. Uh, Joshua 5, let me read 13 to 15 and then a couple of questions around, around the table so you discuss. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, no, too late. Verse 13, when the Joshua, Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals off your feet for the place you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. There you go, back around tables. Who do you think this person is? And, and why do you think that? And why does he reply to Joshua's question like that? What's going on? What does his reply mean? Just, just three, or f- three minutes or so around tables. Okay. Sorry, you need a couple of minutes for that. So here's this strange person. Um, 
Who, who, did, who do people think he, he, he is? Jesus, okay, Jesus. Jesus, a man and a man? No. Yeah, so look, look, I mean, why, why did you think Jesus? Rather than just an angel. Okay, he's a commander, so there's some authority there. And then, was that Alec at the back? Okay, so sword image. I mean, um, New Testament, Jesus in, in Revelation rides out with a sword. He's very much a commander of an army in, in Revelation. Yeah. So uh, Joshua worships and he doesn't tell him not to. Yeah, that's pretty big, isn't it? Joshua bows down and worships. And normally, again, Revelation would be a good example of that. When someone like John mistakenly worships an angel, the angels are always like, whoa, no, 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 no. Um, whereas this, this strange um, being doesn't seem... Um, troubled by the fact that, that Joshua is worshipping him. So a lot of people would, would, would think this, okay, this is the, the pre-incarnate Jesus, as it were. So it's not, he hasn't become flesh, obviously. That doesn't happen until, until the manger or until he's incarnate in Mary's womb. But a, an appearance of Jesus, um, the Son of God. Others think it's, it's just an angel who's in charge of the army, so you can make that what you like. I would lean towards the, it's the, the Son of God appearing. Um, and that makes sense, I think, to the, the question, are you for us or for our enemies? No, um, it's a great answer, but because I'm not, I've not come down to choose whose team I'm going to be on. Okay, the, the whole point is I'm the commander. The question is, are you on my team? Okay, it's, it, it's the other way around. Um, God's question to us is not, um, can I come and be on your side, but will you choose my side? Uh, and so it's, 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 this is just before the conquest of the land. And this is a huge encouragement to Joshua because who's going to actually be commanding the army? Whose fight is this? It's not his, Joshua's, or the Israelites. It's not the churches, in other words. It is God who's going to be doing the fighting. And so the very next thing that happens, if you see chapter 6, is the fall of Jericho. Remember that extraordinary story where they march around the walls? And Do you need someone, Matt? Do we need a parent? Yeah. Second, sorry? Probably. Um below the trumpets and they don't do anything do they the city falls the city falls by grace alone the soldiers don't whatever i don't know what you do in those days um batter the walls down or climb over them or whatever it's not lord of the rings god conquers the city it, it the, the city falls by grace uh, alone and over the next it takes about seven years but the rest of the land slowly falls. There are ups and downs we won't go into, but slowly it falls. And so the high point, and this is where we're going to kind of leave the story today, really, is Joshua 18, verse 1. I put it on the sheet. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. They've conquered the land, and the tent of meeting is there at Shiloh, the, the tabernacle, that is. And so after that point, the rest of Joshua is allotting the land. Okay, Reuben, you're going to live there. Gad, you're going to live over there. Dan, you're going to be down there. Um, Issachar, you're over there. And those promises, those covenant promises to Abraham hundreds of years earlier now are being fulfilled. The people are as many as the stars. They've got a place to live in. And God is present with them in this, this cloud, in the tent, in the tabernacle. Now, just for the last five minutes or so, um, I want to think about the warfare that... We haven't looked a lot, but there's a lot of kind of fighting in Joshua, a lot of conquering. Um, 
Okay, let's just do it around tables. Perhaps concentrate on the first question. If you get time for the second, go for it. But someone says, look, it's cruel, all this stuff that goes on, this warfare in the Old Testament. When God says, go and, you know, go and destroy this town, go and conquer it. It's cruel, vindictive, and very different from the God of the New Testament. How, how might we, we deal with that? Um, the two questions kind of merge into each other, really. How, also, how do you apply those passages to us today? Assuming the answer isn't um, go on some sort of violent crusade or whatever, which definitely isn't the answer. Um, so what, what do we do with the warfare passages? Over to you. Again, just a few minutes around tables. Um, any thoughts? Okay. We need to make sure we're done by quarter past. So... Um, one of the problems of Bible overview is you're necessarily dealing with a lot of material pretty quickly. So if this is a really troubling issue for you, I don't want to deal with it, with it tritely and have to talk more. But let me suggest a couple of things um, that you might have spoken about. I'm sure you, you came up with some of your own as well. Um, one really important thing is this, this conquest, it's not just a kind of jihad, one tribe going and butchering another tribe off their own back. Um, God explains it as him coming and acting in judgment on the nations in the land. So here's Deuteronomy 12 and um, verse 29. Deuteronomy 12, 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and you to dispossess them and dwell in the land, take care you do not be ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you. And you don't inquire about their God saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I may do the same? So God says, look, when you go in, when I've driven out the people for you, again, him driving them out, him doing the action, him doing the judging, when I do that, don't start following their gods. Why not? Here's the crucial verse, verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, as in through these idols. For every abominable thing the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fires to their gods. This is not a bunch of cuddly, lovely, warm-hearted people minding their own business when suddenly the Israelites swoop down uh, like a wolf on the fold. Um, These are people doing child sacrifice elsewhere. We get all sorts of weird sexual practices described. Um, This is judgment on rebellious sinners, not um, tribal warfare, ultimately. Um, And of course... Um, our fundamental problem is we don't think of our sin as deserving judgment we don't think it's that serious I heard these guys talk about it but um, uh, I heard Mark specifically being very erudite on this so ask Mark afterwards but um, the the, the Israelites aren't any better are they it's not like they're better people it's just grace that God has forgiven them and allowed them to be his people really we all deserve to be in the land on the receiving end of the judgment just in his mercy God um, saves Israel and indeed ultimately saves Israel Uh, saves the church Um, so it's a response to sin it's also a unique moment a coming of God's judgment early so the Israelites aren't allowed just to go and attack Ethiopia or have a crack at Egypt or Lebanon or sail across the sea and have a go at Greece it's not like they're just sanctioned just to butcher anyone they want and conquer the world this isn't the kind of um, the sweeping of Islam across the Middle East under Muhammad and his successors, for example. It's a very specific time-bound judgment on these particular tribes. A little, it, it's a bit like Judgment Day has come early for these particular tribes. Um, again, rather than a, just a sort of unhinged jihad. And in terms of what we do with it nowadays, well, um, 
hopefully we're all clear we don't go fighting with weapons things like the crusades at least religiously motivated were uh, a total mistake Um, the politics of them is for a history seminar but um, we don't the church doesn't go forward with a um, uh, with a sword so 2 Corinthians 10 let me just read a couple of verses from there 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 um the weapons of our warfare, so Paul does use warfare language, okay? Church, we're at war. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, more destroy language, fighting. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, the way we fight, we are on a, a mission. Um, we are an, a, a people at war, but we fight through the preaching of the gospel. That is how God conquers his enemies. Go make disciples of all nations, bring them to obey Christ. You're conquering the nations, he says, but not through the sword or the tank or the machine gun, but through the preaching of the gospel and the prayers of the church. So when we, when we try and think, well, how do I, if you like, how do I apply, say, the Joshua passages about conquest then one way to think about it is well we are meant to take not just israel but the whole world for the lord now but we do so by taking every thought captive in other words showing that the, the supremacy of god and the gospel above every other kind of idolatrous uh, religion um lots more we could say you might have thought of other brilliant ideas but we need to wrap up as it's called past let me pray and then we'll work out what's going to happen next um let me pray Our Father in heaven, we're sorry for how lightly we see our sin. We, if we're honest, we see ourselves in the grumbling um, Israelites in the desert. Uh, we know we're no better than them. So often we complain, see all the things we lack rather than uh, the fact you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. Uh, we know too we're not in and of ourselves any better than an Amorite or a Hittite or a Jebusite. Uh, we praise you that judgment fell on Christ in order that it might not fall on us. And we pray, therefore, that we might put all our hope in him, that we might repent and believe in his gospel. And in your mercy, might you use us to to preach the gospel to Leeds and this corner of your world, that others might be conquered by the Spirit, uh, bow before him uh, and uh, join the army of the Lord of hosts. Bless us uh, and give us courage for that spiritual warfare, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.